Part One, Chapter Twenty Seven, Part A of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven, The Second Manassas. Having outlined the main events of the present campaign in the preceding chapter, we return again to the seventeenth, which we unceremoniously left at Gordonsville, cleaning muskets and cooking three days' rations preparatory to the march. Saturday night, August sixteenth, the brigade camped at Orange Courthouse. On Sunday, the drum beat the long roll, and the men fell into line. The troops were all in light marching order a blanket or oilcloth, a single shirt, a pair of drawers and a pair of socks rolled tightly therein, was swung on the right shoulder, while the haversack hung on the left. These, with a cartridge box suspended from the belt, and a musket carried at will, made up Johnny Reb's entire equipment. As for uniforms, there were not two men clothed alike in the whole regiment, brigade, or division. Some had caps, some wore hats of every imaginable shape, and in every stage of dilapidation, varied in tint by the different shades of hair which protruded through the holes and stuck out like quills upon the fretful porcupine. The jackets were also of different shades, ranging from light gray with gilt buttons to black with wooden ones. The pants were for the most part of the nondescript hue which time and all weathers give to ruins, and if with the eye of an artist you still sought to name the color, you would be apt to find it with a strange fatality like that of the soil. White shirts there were none. Shirts of darker shade were scarce, owing to the stringency of the market. Some of the men wore boots, others the army brogans, but many were barefooted. All were dusty and dirty, for no clothes had been issued since the commencement of the early spring campaign. This accounted for the rags and tatters, though the cones and pins of white pine must be held responsible for some of the holes. Human looks did not count for much in this crowd, with whom, though everything else were dull, eyes and gun barrels yet flashed brightly. Neither had the hopes which loomed in their breasts become dimmed, and all else was subservient. In marching, the troops had learned how to get over the ground without raising such clouds of dust and choking themselves with the flying particles. The ranks of fours would split, one half to the right and the other to the left, and then choosing untrod ground, they would proceed with infinitely less trouble and annoyance than in the old way of marching in solid column. Of course, the ubiquitous camp darky, with cooking utensils piled high on his back, brought up the rear of each company. Our rations were doled out in sparring quantities. Three crackers per man and a half pound of fat pork was the daily allowance. The cravings of hunger were hardly satisfied by the dole, but soon we were to get nothing from the commissary. Every soldier in the army knew by these measures that they were on the way to meet our old enemy who had left the vicinity of Richmond, only to appear somewhere in our front between the Rappahannock and the Potomac. The men were becoming veteran soldiers rapidly, and began to understand their work. They were no longer found burdening themselves with useless articles. They ceased to brood over the possible or probable results of the war, its length and its hardships. They had acquired the habit of implicit obedience to superior officers. They had learned how to make a pound of meat and bread go a long way by eating at stated times. They had become adepts in the art of foraging, and they knew how to practice self-denial as a virtue when it had become, in fact, a necessity. They had learned, too, a hundred little ways of adding to their comfort. 
For instance, taking off their shoes on a level stretch of sandy road, of bathing their feet in every running brook, of carrying leaves in their hats as protection against the sun, or lying stretched out at full length at every halt instead of sitting down. Indeed, the devices to make the best of each opportunity filled every spare crack and crevice of the soldier's brain and were too numerous to record. They were little things, it is true, but in the aggregate they amounted to much and were such as marked the difference in a personal combat between the strong unskilled man and the trained athlete. When a soldier had learned how to take care of himself in this manner, he rarely broke down, never grumbled, never straggled, unless he had a positive cause, and with enough to eat was bound to answer to his name at the evening tattoo. In this march the Sibley tents, those abominations, those breeders of disease, were forever discarded, and the troops ever bivouacked in the woods or strung themselves out along the road, anywhere, in fact, where there was a rail fence and water. Many of us carried a little thin cotton tent, sufficient to shelter four men from rain, miniature affairs about the size of a sheet that only weighed about two pounds, and buttoning together answered every purpose. This was a Yankee invention, our government not issuing them, but nearly every soldier had one, confiscated from our obliging friends across the way, upon whose patent we infringe without the slightest compunction. For over a week the column tramped steadily along passing Kelly's Ford, where the old familiar scream of the Yankee shells greeted our ears. It was only a retiring battery, which limbered up before any reply could be dispatched. A whole day's rest was vouchsafed us at Stevensburg, which place in commence and population consisted of only one house. On the 23rd the division halted at Brandy Station, and marched to the edge of Rappahannock Run across which could be seen the long line of Yankee infantry marching off while their artillery crowned the hills ready to pour a rain of iron upon any who should attempt to advance. In the evening, as the brigade was resting on the ground, there came one of those sudden violent thunderstorms so common during a hot midsummer term. The sky grew dark, the air became heavy, the wind died away, and then the tornado burst in all its fury. The men were strongly averse to getting their clothes wet, and wishing at the same time to take a shower-bath, fresh from the sky itself, they disrobed speedily. Placing their clothes under oilskins, they sat or danced around with as much glee as if the storm had gotten up for their benefit, and much in the same way that Adam must have done. It was rather an amusing spectacle, and if our well-dressed enemy had burst among us with a sudden flank attack, they would probably have run in very amazement, thinking a world of bedlamites had broken loose, or that the storm had rained down beings from another world who were performing weird and mystic rites. The clouds emptied themselves at the right time, for it had been weeks since the men had bathed, and this great shower-bath of nature's was therefore as kindly in its offices as it was refreshing. After the rain had washed men and earth, had bathed the trees and grass until they glistened, had started a hundred rivulets flowing on a long journey oceanward, had laid and exercised for a time the demon dust, had revived and refurbished up all nature, the clouds rolled back, the sun came out and dried the bodies of our dripping warriors, and that night the division bivouacked at Waterloo. On the 25th of August, 1862, to the sound of random cannon shots, the soldiers stepped out briskly, crossing the Rappahannock River by a ford at Waterloo. Just before noon, when we were on the opposite side, the brigade witnessed the destruction by the enemy of Warrington Springs, 
whose two splendid hotels were burned to the ground. The large and lofty ballroom, wide passages and spacious corridors, with lofty columns, were soon crumbling masses of ruins. On the 27th the division reached Salem late at night, after a forced march of many miles which broke down a good many of the men. The little village was occupied by the Yankees, but they suddenly concluded to leave us as Longstreet's vanguard filed in. Wearied and prostrated by the heat, and fatigued as were our troops, they were called into ranks again after a short rest, and did not stop until they had reached the plains, a little hamlet close to Thoroughfare Gap. It was long after midnight when about one-fourth of the original force limped into a field and stacked their arms. The balance were strung out along the road, but they soon began to come in by twos and threes, and before sunrise nearly every absentee was in ranks. In the morning no hurry was manifested by the leaders to advance, though the booming of the cannon came at intervals from across the mountains. A squad of the regiment, a few choice spirits who could never let well enough alone, who, if they could not find trouble or danger ready at hand, always went out of their way to seek them, obtained permission from our colonel to proceed in the advance and await the arrival of their brigade at the gap. So Walter Addison, Harmon, and myself started on ahead, leaving the division resting in a large field right at the base of the uprearing mountain. We were soon at the gap, which was found to be strongly guarded by the enemy. Here was a go, as Joe would say, a precious go, for our picket refused to let us approach any closer. An hour or two passed, when suddenly there was a commotion at the gap. A rattling volley came from the rear, and the enemy broke and ran, leaving behind some fifty killed and wounded. One of our brigades had crossed the mountain higher up at Hopewell's Gap, and stormed the enemy in the rear, while our troops menaced the front. Of course, the foe had to strike for his home and his country, especially the former. The van of Longstreet was now passing through the gap, and Jackson was safe. Keeping along the railroad track, and impelled by that spirit of adventure which urges an advance in a strange country, not knowing what to expect, we continued our way. About a mile farther a picket on our side halted us, saying he was the last vedette and that the enemy held possession only a few hundred yards up the track. Turning to retrace our steps, we heard the sound of rapid cannon firing on our left, and proceeded in that direction until the scene of action was nearly reached. Close enough for those who were not obliged to go into battle, for the shells were hitting around rather carelessly, and the purplish rim of smoke demonstrated that the musketry, not a half-mile away, was engaged in its deadly work. We halted and held a council of war wherein all had equal voice, for all were high privates, whether twere better. But just here a noise was heard up the road, and two batteries of the Washington artillery went by at a gallop, half hidden by the cloud of dust that was raised. The men were hanging on as best they could, and were keeping alongside at the top of their speed, while the drivers were lashing their horses unmercifully. "'Where are you bound?' shouted one of the party to an officer who reined up to let the Cations pass. "'To the front,' was the reply. "'The Yankees are pressing us hard.' This settled the rising discussion and the council quickly passed a unanimous resolution to see the fun out. We kept on in the rear of their artillery until it took position on a high crest. There we seceded and started in the direction of the musketry firing, passing on the way Pickett's Virginians lying on the ground drawn up in a line of battle in a strip of woods. Most of the men were asleep, 
though the artillery was thundering and the volume of musketry was growing greater every minute they had become used to these sounds and as the turning wheels in the mill is to the miller as the lullaby of the nurse to the fretful child so was the music of cannonading to these veterans only lulling them to a deeper sleep not far in the advance we came to a group of general officers who mounted on their horses were intently studying the field through glasses seeing us wandering aimlessly about one of the number ordered us back to our regiments so we had to retrace our steps every man of us had come out to see something at any price consequently we flanked the officers and bore to the left where there was a hill covered with trees selecting the tallest we climbed it though as the shells went by from the enemy's batteries not two thousand yards distance one of us slid down in a hurry from the top of a tree a glorious view unfolded itself a panorama of hill and vale far off in the distance right in a valley a little over a mile away were the combatants nearly hidden by the opaque curtain of smoke that had fallen upon the scene like a heavy fog upon a river through the slate-covered vapor the vivid flashing of the guns and the blaze of musketry would burst as lightning from a cloudy sky then the smoke would lift from one part of the field and give a passing glimpse of irregular lines advancing or retreating of men falling of glittering arms and then dense volumes of smoke from the cannon would roll over the scene once more and hide it from our gaze for hours we kept on our perches entranced by the spectacle of a great battle raging before our eyes and did not move until night put an end to the conflict i thought then that if it were possible to build lofty seats where we were with tickets placed on sale what an enormous price they would bring what were the combats of the gladiators in the Colosseum of rome in the days of nero to the grand spectacle of two of the bravest armies in the world contending for mastery where in the space of a mile forty thousand men in plain view were engaged there was not a charge upon jackson's position that was not plainly in view there was not a battery vomiting their death missiles that was not distinct individual suffering none could see but the glorious panoply of war was all there yes the box office receipts would have been immense and there was not an emperor a king or sultan that would not have graced the occasion by his presence when years afterwards I gazed on scenes of mimic warfare, I always thought of that spectacle, the like of which but few eyes ever beheld. Collecting some faggots, we broiled our meat, discussed the chances of tomorrow's battle over our pipes, and solaced ourselves with the hope, fortified by a strong determination, that if our lives were spared, by this time the next night we would each have a Yankee haversack, lined with a little bag of pure coffee, ditto one of sugar. The twenty-ninth of August was a sultry hot day, and we expected every moment to hear a renewal of the battle just where it had left off the night before. Everything, on the contrary, was most serene, and as our scout returned with the information that the 17th had not yet filed through the gap, we determined to visit the battlefield of yesterday. Burial parties had been at work at the earliest dawn, and long trenches were seen, which marked the place where scores of brave men were lying coffinless side by side the wounded had all been removed in the night hence there were but few shocking scenes to revolt the mind only an overturned caisson a few mangled horses the blackened grass bloody rags and that was all a large number of rebel and yankee wounded lay together cheek by jowl in blankets under the shade of the trees 
They were treated impartially, no difference of any kind being made. Many of the wounded were only slightly hurt, and the blue and gray jackets, mixed with one another with the utmost fraternity, joked, sang songs, bantered each upon the other the length of the war, told camp stories, while some were drinking coffee from the same cup, men at whose hearts each had aimed the deadly rifle only a few hours before. How the Yankees did enjoy smoking the rebel tobacco! At the North they sold the soldiers a vile compound made of chicory, cabbage, and sumac leaves ground together and christened tobacco. It burned the tongue, parched the throat, and almost salivated the consumer. It was a subject for meditation to a politician of the extreme type to watch Johnny Reb and Billy Yank smoke the pipe of temporary peace. The privates of both armies never personally disliked one another. They were the best friends in the world as soon as they met on neutral ground. The rapid pounding of the artillery caused us to hurry through the morning meal, almost before the sun rose above the hill, and we pushed for Thoroughfare Gap to rejoin the regiment. We knew by instinct that there would be a battle that day, for there was blood upon the moon. We fancied we could perceive, with another sense, the marshalling in mid-air of cohorts from the unseen world, preparing to take their part in the coming struggle, guiding a bullet home here, interposing to save a life there, taking charge of disembodied souls after the mortal had been put on sudden immortality and stood shivering on the borders of the unknown shore. The air was coming from the mountains, every breath so pure and fresh, odorous with the scent of ripening fruit and clover blossoms. Clean, sweet air, so soon to be tainted with corruption and putrescence. The mountains were looking down upon the plains, with patience infinite it seemed, not stolidly as the pyramids watched the French squares, and the Mamluk cavalry arranged themselves for war, but as sad, pitying witnesses of a coming scene their holy presence would fain have calmed. Never had life seemed more worth living than on a morning such as this, never existence sweeter, never death so loathed the dying. Long streams of soldiers were wending their way to the front. The troops seemed everywhere. They filled the railroad track as far as the eye could reach. They emerged from the narrow gap in the mountain, and spread out over the fields and meadows. They wound along the base of the hills, and marched in a steady tramp over the dusty highways, following a dozen different routes, but each face turned directly and obliquely northward. Ordnance wagons were being pushed rapidly ahead. Batteries were taking position. Staff officers were riding at a gallop, as if seconds and minutes were golden. In short, all fighting material was pushing to the van, and all the peacefully inclined were valiantly seeking the rear. By a law as fixed as that which bound the Stoics, as unalterable as those which govern the affinities of the chemical world, this separation of the two types ever occurred on the eve of battle. An instant sifting of wheat from the tares took place quietly, but surely in every company, and the mass of men so lately mingled became as incapable of mixture as oil and water. The great receding tide at full ebb sank back toward the gap. The mighty army of the backsliders, whom naught could hinder, non-combatants, camp darkies, shirking soldiers playing possum, and camp followers. Warm work was expected, and all this genus, like war-horses, sniffed danger from afar. Some were on foot, carrying arms full of muskets, which the ordnance officer was sending to the rear. Others were loaded with accoutrements and blankets, which they were transferring to a secure place, watched and guarded by a sentry. 
for this riffraff of the army was not noted for its honesty. A few were the possessors, for the time, of a broken-down horse or spavined mule, and were urging these poor animals to their fastest speed. It was this crowd belonging to the wagon train, or detailed for work such as blacksmithing, using every artifice to avoid the marching and the fighting, which hung on the army like barnacles on a staunch ship's bottom, impeding its course and weighting it down. It was the impedimenta that flocked to the battlefield as soon as the shot and shell ceased firing, and despoiled and stripped friend and foe alike, dead or wounded, it mattered not, though they never killed or ill-treated the injured or maimed. Reaching the gap, we found that the brigade had passed through. Following hard upon the track, our little squad, after an hour's march, caught up and took its place in rank. The men were in a fearful humor, grumbling at their luck and cursing the commissary. They had ample cause. Not a single ration had been issued to the troops for several days, and the soldiers were savage from hunger. The brigade halted in line of battle about half a mile this side of the famous Chin House, on the outskirts of a large cornfield. There it was that the lines were broken, and the brigade dispersed in a second. The officers, tired of shouting themselves hoarse, joined the men in the rush for roasting ears, which were now in full ripeness, and never was a field gleaned so completely and in such a short time. Three thousand men made onslaught. There was a confused noise of breaking stalks. The tops and weaving tassels of the whole field were shaken violently as if a sudden tornado had passed over them, and each soldier returned, lugging in his arms a pile of succulent, juicy corn. No fires were allowed to be built, so the ears were devoured raw. We secured more than our share, for the other brigade commanders sent details with wagons all over the county taking all the corn they could lay their hands on, and issuing daily rations to the troops of three ears of corn to a man and nothing more. It is a solemn fact that Longstreet's corps had received no rations for four days, and lived on daily allowances of green corn, fighting and winning a great battle on empty stomachs. End of chapter 27, part A.